So uh, off they go. Sorry? But not youth. So youth are staying in today. So uh, if you're youth, settle down and stay with us. So good morning to you all, and uh, here we are, uh, inching ever closer to Christmas Day itself, and no doubt if you're even vaguely normal, uh, you are feeling tired at this point, and probably weary, and possibly sick. Uh, Everybody I speak to uh, seems to be sick at the moment, so uh, welcome to the club. Um, So... At this point, all the preparations are done, right? (laughs) Or not. Yeah, I get it, I get it. And in the midst of uh, all this rush and busyness, uh, here we are trying to find that center uh, out of which we can really appreciate what Christmas is about. And for those of you that have been around... Uh, we have been looking this uh, Advent season at the reality that uh, peace is what this is all about, and particularly uh, peace in its full Old Testament uh, conception of shalom. And peace is not simply the absence of war, but in the Hebrew understanding of shalom, it is a a state of wholeness, a state of completeness, uh, a state where everything is right. And that is what the Prince of Peace, who came at Christmas, uh, comes to bring. But there is this deep irony at the heart of this season, because in bringing peace and in seeking to bring in that completeness, that rightness, what we have is a lot of turmoil. And last week, we looked at the story of Mary, uh, the Annunciation to Mary, uh, the way she said yes uh, to uh, allowing God to bless her with the child Jesus. And we saw just what chaos that let Mary in for, all the risks she took by saying yes. And so although it was the Prince of Peace coming to her, the upshot for her was a lot less than peace. And a lot of it was chaotic and risky and fear-inducing. And Today, we come to this story, the story of the Magi, and we're going to see that uh, the coming of the Prince of Peace into this story has implications that are not peaceful for many. So let's take a look then at this story that uh, Claire read to us at the start. 
Matthew is the only gospel that includes this account, the account of the arrival of the Magi from the east. Now, it's believed that these men were astrologers and perhaps astronomers too, uh, from Iran. And as such, they probably came from a Zoroastrian religious perspective. Uh, These were people completely beyond Israel, uh, completely beyond even uh, a concept probably of monotheism. And yet, as they gazed at the heavens, they figured out that something special was going on. Uh, There's been all kinds of speculation as to what it was they saw. Uh, Was it a star? Was it a comet? Uh, People have uh, done their homework and tried to figure it all out, and nobody really knows, but they saw something. And that something that they saw convinced them that something important was happening in Israel. And I think it's perhaps important and good for us to uh, remember uh, from this story that God is always at work, and His work often goes far beyond the reach of His people. So, the people of Israel didn't have a lot of connections to what was happening in Iran. But that didn't mean that God couldn't speak to people in Iran. And often it's the same today with the church. God is calling people to himself from all kinds of backgrounds, from all kinds of places, in all kinds of ways. And that's happening far beyond the reach, often, of Christians. And so as Christians, we're excited about being a missional church going out into the world we have been placed into alongside our neighbors uh, and our colleagues, as we saw in the skit this morning, uh, discovering that God is doing stuff way beyond us and that we get invited to join in with it. And here is a story that we're looking at this morning that invites us into a big reality of God at work in His world. We don't quite know how God convinced the Magi that they had to leave their books and their telescopes, if they had such things, and get on, was it camels, donkeys, who knows, to make that journey. But God did that, and God convinced them that they had to get to Israel to celebrate the coming of the king. And of course... When they did, they went to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the only city of note in Israel at the time. And where else would you expect a king to be born? But the coming of the Magi to Jerusalem creates major uproar. No one in Jerusalem, which of course is gloriously ironic, Here is the people of God with the book of God, the Torah, and all the writings and all the prophecies. And they are a people who are waiting for who? Messiah. They are longing for Messiah. And Messiah gets born right in their midst. 
and they don't even notice. Uh, it's, it's sad at some level, right? But no one in Israel at the time is looking around and saying, oh yes, the king has been born, we have to find him. It takes these strangers. But they arrive, and that when they arrive, Jerusalem is turned into chaos, partly because Herod was not a nice guy. Uh, we know a little bit about Herod. He was appointed in 37 BC, and he wasn't even Jewish. He was appointed by the Romans, and he established his rule, and he turned out to be a, a nasty bit of work. Somehow power does things to people, and power did its thing to Herod. Herod was uh, tyrannical. Uh, he had his wife executed because uh, he was suspicious about her. Uh, he was a generally unpleasant kind of guy. And the thought uh, for uh, him that maybe another king had been born uh, was interpreted solely as threat. There's a, a thing about kings, right? They, uh, uneasy lies the head that wears the crown, they say. There's always somebody who's going to come and jolt you off uh, your throne uh, if you leave things uh, untouched. And so when the whisper came to, uh, to Herod that a king had been born, this was not good news for Herod. And if it wasn't good news for Herod, it wasn't going to be good news for anybody in Jerusalem either. And Herod was going to find out what was going on and pronto. And so he calls a quick council of all the Jewish religious leaders and he asks them a question. And it's a fairly simple question because he's kind of put two and two together in his Machiavellian kind of scheming mind. And he goes, are we actually dealing with a Messiah here? Where's Messiah to be born? And that question was not a bad question to ask, and it was actually an answer that, a question that they had the answer to. That's because they did have their scriptures. And Micah's prophecy, the one we looked at a couple of weeks ago with uh, David Morgan, uh, was made it very clear. The Messiah was going to come from Bethlehem. Well, armed with this information, Herod now has a private audience with the Magi and finds out from them exactly when the star appeared. And he figures that they are the ones that can lead him to this baby and he sends them off to do the work and he asks them to report back to him once they track the baby down so that he can go and worship him. So the text doesn't tell us what the Magi made of Herod. But at least from their point of view, they got pointed in the right direction. And as they head off towards Bethlehem, and it's not actually a long trip, it's only about 10 kilometers from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. As they go off on their trip, they see the star again, and they are absolutely overjoyed. And as they come into Bethlehem, it leads them. We don't know how, we don't understand what God was doing with all that, 
but it leads them to the house where the baby was. This makes us think that uh, it is after the Christmas events, right? This is not perhaps the stable, uh, although there is discussion about that stable actually being part of a house uh, and that maybe they were in the stable part of a house for the birth. But this is possibly later on, after the census had been dealt with and while uh, Joseph and Mary are staying in Bethlehem and living in Bethlehem uh, to, to start bringing Jesus up. So it may be a bit distanced from the actual events of Christmas as we usually think of it. But when they come in to the house, they find their heart's desire, what they have been looking for. They find Jesus and they worship. And it's a beautiful part of the story, really, that these men, uh, led by God in mysterious ways, find their way to God's prince, the coming one, the Messiah. And they, uh, of all the people in Israel who probably ought to have been falling down in worship, they are the ones to adore, to kneel, to wonder, and to worship. And they pour out their gifts, the treasures that they have brought, the gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And then, and then they get a dream. So God's at work in this story in mysterious ways, but he reveals himself to them in a dream, and he gives them some very specific instructions. Don't go back to Herod. Go home. Another route. And off they go, and they disappear from the story. We never hear from them again. We don't know what God was doing with all that. Uh, we don't know how they processed it. But that's the story. And they fade to black. And we don't know. But it's not the end of the story, is it? Because uh, after they leave, Joseph himself gets another angelic visit. And he gets clear instructions from an angel to head to Egypt with Mary and Jesus, owing to Herod's desire to kill the baby. And the urgency of the message is clear because that very night, Joseph jumps up, grabs Mary and the baby, and they head out of town. It's interesting that Jesus, one of his earliest experiences in life, was actually becoming a refugee. Uh, we often think about Jesus as the one who identifies with us in our pain and our crisis. But here is a reality, forced to flee, uh, forced by uh, threat of violence to be displaced from his home. And then the closing note, the unchristmassy note, if you like, of this story is... Herod's homicidal fury. Foiled by the departure of the Magi, he unleashes his troops in a terrible and vain judgment on a group of young babies and boys whose only fault was to have been born 
in Bethlehem. And Jeremiah's lament for the grieving mothers is the fitting end note to this sad scene, which of course is a sad scene too often repeated throughout history as mothers try to make sense of the merciless use of power that so often harms the weakest and harms the children. So where then does all this leave us? We've been seeing that God's plan to introduce the Prince of Peace into our peaceless world seems to have awoken turmoil. The popular conception of Christmas as a sanitized festival of happiness and smiles doesn't leave us with a lot of room for genocidal kings and murdered babies. But then perhaps it's the popular conception of Christmas as an escape from the reality of life that we need to discard. A couple of thoughts here, because this is really a challenge, right? The fact that all this violence breaks out around the coming of the Prince of Peace. I think we have to take the long view and the big picture on this one. God knew what he was getting into in entering into our broken world. He was well aware that planet Earth had fallen under the control of a dark power. A dark power that stands behind all human authorities and powers. And he knew that in order to overcome the power of the evil one, Satan, extraordinary love and sacrifice would be required. The decision to enter our world as a human baby in weakness and fragility is just such extraordinary love. And we have to remember, taking that long view again, that Christmas is just the beginning of a story that would culminate at Easter 30 years or so later, when the God-man Jesus would break the power of evil by voluntarily laying down his life on the cross. So it's important for us to never forget that we happen to find ourselves on a planet that is actually a war zone. I think there's a tendency for us in the West, uh, particularly, to read about stories of struggle and war, and we go, ah, well, that's Syria. Well, if we were Syrian, we would say, no, it's not just Syria, that's us. And I think this first Christmas story reminds us that the war zone is the planet, not just Syria. The war zone is everywhere because God is breaking into our broken world with his kingdom and we are part of it. We can't simply dismiss it to the far corners of our world or places that we know to be conflict zones. 
We are in the conflict zone. But if all that sounds a little bleak, and it's not intended to be, it's just intended to kind of balance this stuff out, we also need to remember that the Prince of Peace does, in fact, bring peace. These stories of the first Christmas remind us that although turbulence, turmoil, chaos, and violence are definitely part of the story, they are not the last word. When we get tempted to despair as we read the news and feel overwhelmed, we desperately need to remember that God is at work. As C.S. Lewis reminds us, Aslan is on the move. The control of the white witch is being shaken and new things are stirring. We live at a fascinating time in history. I'm interested, by the way, in Matthew's gospel here, we, we see these dreams, these strange things that are happening in the heavens that implicate people and draw people in to what God is actually doing. The last 20 years have seen an unprecedented movement of God in our world, particularly in Muslim nations. And in places beyond the reach of the church, people are waking up in the night having had visions of Jesus appearing to them. People are having dreams, telling them to go to specific places where they encounter Christians. There are extraordinary stories, I mean, I mean extraordinary stories of God at work in our world in places that hitherto have basically been closed, as we have understood it, to God's work and, and uh, moving. We know of a church in uh, Toronto, an Iranian church in Toronto, that baptized 75 people recently. And many of them had had visions of Jesus propelling them into the faith. Mark Anderson, who's here this morning, was at a baptism service a few months ago. Was it 14, Mark? Uh, young people, all of them had had... You, do you want to... 17. 17? Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay, okay. So, I mean, and this is, this is in, in the Lower Mainland, right? And so, you know, I, I just, I don't want us to go out of, the, out of here this morning with a sense of kind of bleakness, uh, but I do want us to come out of here with a sense that God is at work in our world and that we live in an extraordinary time, a time in which all kinds of people are waking up to discover that the Prince of Peace is the only one who can bring peace in our chaotic and scattered world. Part of the reality of the kingdom of this world getting overturned and upturned is this turbulence that we are living. 
But in the midst of the turbulence, the Prince of Peace is drawing close to individuals. And all those here who know him know that he does that to us. He sustains us through trouble. He holds us. He walks with us. He does not leave us abandoned to the turbulence, but he chooses to enter our world and walk with us in it. And that is the heart of the good news that we proclaim here. So it's Christmas. And this story today reminds us that in this kingdom that Jesus is ushering in, the little people and the former outsiders, like the Magi, are drawn to the center. And the bullies and the corrupt, like Herod, are sent empty away. And at the center of it all stands Jesus himself. Yes, he came as a baby, but he came as a baby to die on a cross and to be revealed as the king. And now he reigns. And he is the one we worship at Christmas. And he is the one we exalt. He's the Lord of all. He's the king of kings. And this Christmas, we all have the opportunity to worship him. It's really not about the cookies. It's really not about the chocolate. It's really about the King of Kings. And we are invited to worship Him and to praise Him. And that's what we're going to do right now. We're going to continue the refrain, the refrain that is being sung in heaven today that is extending around our world as God brings in his kingdom. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for this Christmas season. We thank you for the great risk you took in coming and identifying so closely with us that you became a baby. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for doing that. But thank you that you didn't stay a baby. Thank you that you grew up to teach us to show us how to live, to reveal the Father to us, and to die for us so that we could be restored to relationship with you. Lord, we know this is the heart of what Christmas is about. And we pray that this Christmas season, with all the turmoil, with all the chaos, with all the struggle, with all the grief, with all the violence that so characterize our world, that you, Prince of Peace, are bringing in a new order, ushering it in quietly, an order in which you are exalted as the King and in which people find themselves in you as your loved children. We thank you for that, and we praise you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As we move into our time of worship, I'd like to invite our prayer ministry team to come up. And uh, I know...